You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everybody, so this is it, the week of the Tony Awards. Don't forget, this Sunday, June 12th, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, CBS, set your DVRs, watch it live, going to be very exciting. Whatever you're doing, make sure you watch the Tony Awards and root for Spring Awakening. On with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week. One article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. Today, I've traveled uptown. I'm all the way at 65th Street to talk to one of the most important artistic directors of one of the most important nonprofit theaters in the whole wide world. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast the artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater, Mr. Andre Bishop. Welcome, Andre. Thank you. So Andre has been the artistic director at Lincoln Center for over two decades now. Prior to that, he was the AD at one of the other most prestigious nonprofits in the land, Playwrights Horizon. Under his direction, he has overseen the development and production of three Pulitzer Prize winners, Driving Miss Daisy, Sunday in the Park, Heidi Chronicles, as well as some incredibly important theater pieces like Costa Utopia, the Nick Heitner Carousel, which was one of my favorites, uh, Twelfth Night, Light in the Piazza, and of course the revivals of South Pacific and The King and I. So, Andre... Let's start with this. Where are you from originally? I'm from New York City. You are born and raised here? Born and raised here. So when you were a, a wee lad here in the city, did you think someday I want to grow up and I want to lead some of the most important nonprofit theatrical institutions in the world? I didn't think that because I didn't really know what a nonprofit, well, there were no nonprofit institutions theatrically when I was a kid growing up in New York, but... The only thing I ever wanted to be was in the theater. It was the only thing that ever interested me. Uh, and I wanted to be somehow connected to the theater, you know, f since I was about three or four years old. I was lucky because my parents took me to the theater a lot. And, of course, in those days, the theater, the only theater, was really the Broadway theater. Uh, so I grew up seeing plays. And like everyone who I think is in the theater, you know, Everyone wanted to be an actor. That's what you wanted to be when you were young. So that's what I thought I would be. Um, but I had no idea that I would become a artistic director, producer, whatever the right word is. It never would have occurred to me. And you started to pursue a career as an actor? I did. I uh, acted a lot at school and at college. I did a lot of summer stock. I did a few plays here in New York, as well as a number of voiceovers. I studied with uh, two incredible teachers, disciples of Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse, Wynne Handman, the great Wynne Handman, and Freddie Karaman. Um, and I pretty much thought that I would be an actor, and I wanted to be, and I, I wasn't, I'm not going to say, oh, I had no talent, I had no talent, because I actually did have some, albeit peculiar and quirky talent, I did have talent, and I was a pretty good actor. What I didn't have was confidence in myself as an actor. I, I found it 
impossible to present myself in auditions or in interviews or anything like that. I just, I didn't have that. And when did you know you didn't have that and what made that realization start to veer you towards the other side of the table, so to speak? Well, I t it wasn't clear cut. You know, I think most of us who work in the theater fall into it in different ways. And some of those ways are pure luck and some of those ways are just coincidental. Um, what happened was I was living in New York. I was in my late mid to late 20s. I was working as an actor, and I did act in off-Broadway shows, and I, I did do a little bit of work. I had an agent and all that stuff. Um, but I was not... I didn't feel connected to something, and I think that what I didn't realize then, but I do now, is that for somebody like me, it's very, very important to be connected to something other than myself. And actors have to be connected to themselves because at the end of the day, they all they have is themselves and their talent. Um, and, of course, the play, the, the role they're playing. Uh, I had a friend who was a really great director and he was directing a lot at a tiny little hole-in-the-wall theater. This would have been in the early 1970s called Playwrights Horizons. And he said, you know, why don't, you seem lost, which I was. And he said, why don't you go there and see if there's something you might want to do? Um, so I did. I had been working other jobs, you know, like everyone. I was a waiter. I worked for the Book of the Month Club. I gave French lessons to people, that kind of thing. Um, but I met this incredible man, Bob Moss, Robert Moss, the founder of Playwrights Horizons, who to me and to many others, said, you know, come on in. What do you want to do? And I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I had had some taste of working in the theater, in a nonprofit theater, because I had worked uh, at the Shakespeare Festival at the Delacorte for one summer. Uh, so I went and sort of volunteered at Playwrights Horizons, all the while pursuing an acting career. Um, I was very taken with the mission of Playwrights Horizons, which is unchanged today, as it was then, which was the support and development and production of new American playwrights and composers and lyricists. Um, and what happened over the course of a number of months was that I started seeing all these piles of plays that no one was reading. And I went to Bob Moss and I said, you know, I hate to ask you this favor, but do you suppose I could read a play and would you mind if I wrote you a play report? And Bob, because he's the most generous of people, said, sure. So I started reading plays and evaluating them and meeting writers more or less my age and my generation, talking to them, doing readings of plays. And um, what happened by default because I had never gone to graduate school, I became one of the first literary managers in this country. It was just coincidence. But the the big day came for me when I had been at Playwrights Horizons for about perhaps a year and had met all these people and was very interested in, in the mission of that theater. And I had been cast in a tour of a play by Alan Bennett, national tour of a play by Alan Bennett called Habeas Corpus. And it was a good role. I was always playing, you know, neurotic 
sensitive young men. And this was the ultimate neurotic sensitive young man part. And the tour was about nine months, you know, kind of tour they used to do in the late 1970s. Um, and I didn't know what to do because I thought if I leave Playwrights Horizons and go on this tour, I will have given up everything that I've kind of been doing for the past year. You know, there's, you can't go back in quite the same way. The tour was fairly long. And I thought, what do I do? And I decided to turn down the offer of the tour and stay at Playwrights Horizons. And that was a turning point in my life because I never thought about acting again. I became so involved in, as I said earlier, the mission of Playwrights Horizons and what I felt was a noble and beautiful cause and a theater that I felt provided a need in those days. It's quite different now in 2016. There were very few theaters in this country exclusively doing new American plays. Um, now, theaters all over the country are doing new American plays. Um, I felt what Playwrights Horizons was doing was important, and I stayed there. And, uh, well, I guess that's <laughs> that's kind of the end of that very long-winded story. So you ended up obviously being the artistic director there, and then yes. you, you end up going from there to here. Tell me, what's a day in the life of an artistic director of a large theatrical institution like Lincoln Center or Playwrights? What, 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 do you, what did you do before I walked in today? What will you do uh, after I leave? Uh, what did I do? Well, I, I, um, I, I think that it's impossible to say. Well, I don't really remember what I did. I've had about three meetings, one about who is going to take over the running of LCT3, this new theater we have on the roof. I had a meeting about a, a, a group of people who want to distribute free tickets to to writers on nights that we have tickets available. Um, I had a discussion with the managing director about various people's salaries. I had a discussion about the rehearsal and put in of the two new leads in The King and I. Um, I read some reviews of a play I'm kind of interested in that I had forgotten that I had read these reviews. Uh, and I answered about 9,255 emails. Um, and it's only one o'clock. Uh, but it really varies. There are days where I have very little to do, days where I have no time to to think straight. A lot of my time is obviously taken up with rehearsal, with discussions with writers and, and, and directors, with casting sessions. Uh, obviously, there's a great deal of fundraising in my job. With the fundraising staff, I have a great deal to do with certain members of the board. Um, I, of course, go out and see everything I can see on Broadway, off Broadway, and around the country. Um, because I'm at the point in my life where people think, you know, I'm 150 years old. I become, I have become, you know, a kind of source for young people to come and listen to whatever wisdom I have, which is limited. Um, so I find a lot of my time now, and it's a good thing, it's a fun thing, is taken up by giving younger people, uh, well, advice, for lack of a better word. 
about the theater. And I guess at this point, after working in the New York theater for 40 years, you know, I do have something to tell them. You mentioned uh, in your description of what you do earlier, you said, oh, an artistic director or a producer or whatever the right word is. Yes. Do you consider yourself a producer? Yes, I do. I mean, actually, my title is producing artistic director. I would rather, I had no title, but these nonprofit institutions, everyone has a title. And um, yeah, I think that, I don't think the word producer is a term that is exclusively meant for the commercial theater. You know, we are a producing organization. Even though I am the artistic director, uh, it's not a job where I sit around, you know, eating bonbons and discussing Sartre and George Bernard Shaw. I mean, it's hands-on, nitty-gritty work, advertising, money. And, of course, my best thing is is working with the artists. Uh, And since my interest has always been New American Plays and musicals, that, as long as I'm here at Lincoln Center, is the main activity that we do. Uh, Though, of course, we've done a lot of, you know, I think pretty good revivals of plays and musicals. And you don't direct? I don't direct. Have you ever wanted to? No. No. I'm I'm too neurotic and uh, anxious uh, a person. I couldn't deal with, you know, these directors, they just hear it from everybody. Everybody's an opinion and feels obliged to express that opinion. I, I couldn't handle it temperamentally. And I don't really think I had have the talent either. But oddly, I think whatever little skill I have, I am probably more helpful to directors than I am to writers. Somehow, it's very easy for me. I've always been good as being the third pair of eyes. And I've always been very good at reacting to things that I see and not imposing my own vision of what it is, but trying to figure out the director's vision of what it is, i.e., you know, what the production is. Um, I think it's really hard now in the theater of today for directors to also be artistic directors. There are some around the country, and there are companies fewer today than 25 or 30 years ago, but there are companies that are built around a director, in Europe, that exists much more than over here, and that's great. Uh, but, you know, the, there are companies whose vision in their work is the vision of the artistic director, who is also the principal director. So that still does exist. Um, and then, of course, there are companies that are run by artistic directors uh, who direct, who, in my opinion, are really not so talented. Uh I think it's really hard to be an artistic director slash producer and be able to find the time and the peace of mind to go into a rehearsal room at a preview period for two, two and a half, three months when everything else in the institution demands your attention as well. I greatly admire those who do it, but boy, is it hard, I think. You obviously have a great set of eyes from the days of you being the first ever literary manager and reading those packets of scripts uh, all the way now and discovering 
and helping give birth to so many incredible shows from Heidi Chronicles, I mentioned, or Falsettos, which is about to experience a revival, yes. which you're going to be involved in. Yes. What do you look for? When you're reading a script, what makes you go, oh, this is something that I think audiences will enjoy, learn from? What What are the ingredients of a successful I, script? I've always had trouble with that question. Um and also, I think over the course of my years at Playwrights Horizons and here in Lincoln Center Theater, my taste, if you can use that word, has changed, hopefully broadened and deepened and expanded. Uh, obviously, at Lincoln Center, because we have these two thrust stages, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but it's true, some of my, I guess, judgments, to use that word, are inspired by the architecture of the building. Quite frankly, there are very few thrust stages in this country, and not every play is seen at its best on a thrust stage. Um, so I do have to think about that, especially with the Beaumont, which is an enormous theater. The audience part of it isn't that enormous. It's a very intimate theater. But the stage space what we call acreage up here. The Beaumont is the third biggest stage in New York. Third only before us is Radio City and uh, Metropolitan Opera. Uh, I obviously, all my life, I have looked for what I call distinctive idiosyncratic voices, playwrights who have a very distinctive style and method. I... Obviously, like everyone who likes a good play, I'm interested in plays that have something to say about the world, plays that say whatever they have to say about the world in a slightly different way than other plays. Um, in terms of the audience, I, I think, and I, I think I'm being, being real and not deluding myself, I never think about the audience. My mantra, and I've been lucky enough over all these years and in two theaters, I've been lucky enough to follow my own instincts all the time. And I, my hope is that what I see in a play, if we do it well, will be clear and others will see what I see in the play as well. I, so I, I don't, I've never ever thought about will the audience like this play or not. Maybe it's arrogance on my part, though I'm not an arrogant guy, so I don't think it's that. Maybe it's just delusion. But I've always felt if I like something, and I'm not, you know, Mr. Refined, I'm pretty broad in my tastes. If I like something and we do a good production of it, others will like it too. Uh, I think when you start trying to guess, outguess things, you can run into trouble, I think. I mean, and I've been involved with plays over the years. There have been occasionally plays that I've read that I I knew would be appealing to an audience. I remember years ago when I was at Pirates Horizons and I got the, uh, Driving Miss Daisy from a writer who was not really, who had written his first play, had been a lyricist and a book writer, Alfred Urey. And his agent, this great agent named Flora Roberts, who's long gone, but of the old school of agenting, I remember calling her up and saying, you know, Flora, this play is too commercial, even for me. 
And uh, that was a play that I knew just sitting on my sofa reading it would appeal to an audience. Um, but you never know what an audience is going to like. We've done plays here that I was afraid would be very controversial for people, and I've often been proved wrong. Any play of yours that you remember that you were like, oh, this is going to hit it out of the park, they're going to get this, and then hasn't? No. I'm too... I'm not... I'm too neurotic to think that way. No. I have developed over the years this theory, which I, I don't like to admit a whole lot, is that... But I, I think it's true that usually... I mean, I, I used to think when I was younger that you could take something of promise and make it really good over the course of rehearsal and previews. And I think that is probably still pretty true of musicals that to some degree, as everyone knows, are put together on their feet because there's no other way to do it. Workshops, whatever, that's all just a little bit of the work that needs to be done. But I think I now have come to think that with certain kinds of shows even if they need work and polish and cutting and fixing during the course of a preview period, I've come to think that I can tell at the first preview whether the show is going to work well or not. Years and years of my life in the theater, I've spent denying that fact. But now, at this point in my life, I think that's true. doesn't mean there isn't work to do. doesn't mean that you can't make whatever the show is better. But when the lights go down and the curtain call starts, there's this thing you know whether the basic event you have presented to the audience is appealing to them and accepted by them or not. So note to self, I'm going to invite you to all my first previews from now on. Maybe you'll tell me when to close shows earlier. No, uh, God. No. I mean, <laughs> save, it's just save where, money or invest yeah. more. Uh, Broadway is booming right now. We're all talking about how the Broadway grosses are up year over year, attendance up a little bit. Is that trickling down to the nonprofits as well? Do you find our subscription rates up here? Do you find more single ticket sales for your stuff, both Broadway and off? I think it's pretty holds pretty steady in a theater like this. You know, we have a membership base which has remained pretty constant over the years. It's not a subscription. It's a you become a member and you get notified when we do a play and you pay a very small amount of money to get a very, very good seat. And But you don't have to pay in advance. So if there's, you know, you really just do not want to see another production of The King and I, you don't have to pay money and see it. Um, I'm slightly less bullish about everything is booming than you are, but I, of course I don't work in your world. I think that from my somewhat distance observations and a little bit of doing, you know, big shows, that certain shows are booming. But I dare say if you look at the grosses this past winter and even now in the spring on Broadway, there are a lot of shows that in the old days, whatever those old days were, should be doing a whole lot better than they are. They're hanging in there. Either they're just making their weekly costs or 
the producers are willing to lose money or whatever. I don't know the economics at all. You would know that better than me. But there's so much to see on Broadway and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway that I think the level of activity and, in my opinion, the level of artistry is as high as it's ever been. And as we all talk about beginning to be as varied and diverse as it's ever been, particularly on Broadway. Um, but I'm not convinced that there's this just fantastic ticket sale boom going on. I think a lot of tickets are sold. Many, many of them are discounted, obviously. Uh, and I think it's fabulous. I mean, I, I think the more there is, the better it is for the theater. But I, I, I don't know whether, despite the numbers that are presented at the end of every year, you know, more millions saw Broadway shows than ever before, whatever. I, I'm not sure I believe, I believe the truth of those figures. I just don't believe that they necessarily mean what people think they mean. That's probably a wacko answer. No, I actually think it's a very right-on answer. You've here in Lincoln Center. You've had some terrific relationships with directors over the years. Yes. Nick Heitner, several productions with him. Bart, of course, several productions with Bart Sher. Yes. How important is the director in the creation of something new or in the production itself? Uh, the importance of the director, in my opinion, especially as we talked about earlier, I am not a director myself. I am totally reliant on first-rate directors, and especially to go back to something I also said, you know, directors who know how to deal with thrust stages. Uh, and because this is a theater that has three theaters, a tiny one for only young writers and young directors and young designers and, and new audiences, and then the Mitzi, which is 300 seats, which is mostly the new play theater, and then the Beaumont, which is more the director's space, classics, and, you know, big musicals. I am completely reliant on directors who are mature, who know dramaturgically how to work on new work, who have a breadth of vision and knowledge of the past 300 years of, of plays and, and musicals, who have a sense of tradition, who know about the classics, uh, and who are unafraid, especially of a big space like the Beaumont. And I've been lucky. Nick, as you said, Heitner was one. Bart Shear is certainly one. Who He's a guy who's at home with new plays, at home with operas, at home with revivals of musicals, at home with new musicals, at home with classic American plays like Clifford Odette's. Bard has been key. Jerry Zachs, in the very early days of Lincoln Center Theater, he and John Guare basically were responsible for relighting this place artistically. Uh, the late Jerry Gutierrez, who died much too young, was of enormous impact to us here at Lincoln Center Theater. Susan Stroman, uh, I am obsessed with finding the right directors for us and for the project. Okay, here comes one of my James Lipton questions now. I want you to imagine that your phone rings and it's the Smithsonian calling. 
and they say of the 40 years that you've uh, been doing shows here, we have room for one of them in the Institute. One show that you've worked on that you would like to be preserved forever. In other words, what's your favorite of all the shows? That's, uh, I, 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 I couldn't answer that. I'm not being coy. I, I'm not trying to say, well, I don't want to single one out. You know, I've been so lucky in my life because I've done, you know, so many new plays, American plays of all sorts of uh, types. I've done a lot of revivals of classic musicals. I've done so many new musicals uh, and done so many revivals of American plays and a few really great English plays, notably the works of David Hare and Tom Stoppard. I could maybe give you three or four. I couldn't give you one. Give us three. Uh, well, if the Smithsonian were willing to take in all three parts of the coast of Utopia... That would count as one. <laughs> that Okay, that would be one, because it was so impossible to do and so terrifying to do, and it turned out so beautifully, and it turned out also to be so popular... And it turned out to, to to have what I've always wanted to do here, and I don't know if it's ever going to be possible. It was a, like a little mini repertory company, and this is what the Lincoln Center, what it used to be called, the Repertory Theater of Lincoln Center, was supposed to be that, never really became that. That would be one. I think probably South Pacific, which is my favorite musical ever in the entire world, would be one. Uh, I suppose in terms of New musicals, The Light in the Piazza would be one. Certainly when I was Playwrights Horizons, falsettos, both parts, would be one. Certainly one of Wendy Wasserstein's plays, one of John Robin Bates's plays. Um, you know, it's a tough question. You're probably the only one, only guest I would ever allow to select more than one oh, because well, of the breadth you were. So don't tell any other guests, just I won't, so you know. Thank you. Uh, if you were a new Sunday in the Park with George, yeah, I have to say. James Lapine was on earlier and he talked about that at length. Well, it was an amazing time for him and for Steve Sondheim and for Playwrights Horizons. It was a sort of seminal time, 1984. I want you to reverse the roles for a second. Imagine that you are one of those new American playwrights that you've cultured over the years. And I want you to imagine that you're that playwright and Cameron McIntosh approaches you and says, hey, I want to option your play and put it on Broadway. And then at the same time, Lincoln Center Theater says, hey, we want to option your play and we want to put it on Broadway at the Beaumont. Which do you think is the best choice for the for you, the new American playwright? Well, I think neither choice is completely plausible in life. Uh, I would say for a new playwright, if that's what you're saying, that the better route, and it has nothing to do with wanting good plays on Broadway or commercial producers, I think for a young writer, this... It, the better route is in a nonprofit institution initially. It's a little more protected in these kinds of theaters. There is a base audience that will come. Uh, meeting weekly expenses is not an issue. 
because we factor in, you know, the, the low cost of tickets. It's all part of the production budget in theaters like Lincoln Center or Playwrights Horizons or the public theater, whatever. Um, I think a young writer is a little bit more protected in an institution than in the, you know, very public, very hard world of the Broadway theater. Because I think also if you do a play it's successful in the institutional theater, it can always then go to Broadway with Cameron McIntosh. Its life is not necessarily over at an institution. So I think a young writer can eat, eat his or her cake and have it too, in a way. You obviously have the Beaumont here, and from time to time you produce in Broadway houses yes. in Midtown. Uh, the Belasco seems to be a favorite and of the Lyceum, yes. What do you think about some of the other nonprofits in town that have snatched up their own Broadway houses in Midtown? Seems to be they all have them now. Well, I think it's an inevitable growth. I think that, I, I think that, you know, I mean, when I, 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 I can't really speak for these other theaters because I, I don't really know what goes on. I mean, when I left Playwrights Horizons, it was the last thing I had on my mind. I got offered the job. Gregory Mosher, my very distinguished predecessor, had, had left. Uh, and they needed someone. And I, at that point, was kind of the golden boy of the New York theater. And they came to me. And it was the last thing I thought. I never wanted to leave Playwrights Horizons. It was everything I loved, and, and to some degree it still is. Uh, though, I, of course, I haven't worked there in 25 years, but I'm on the board, um, and I care about it deeply. And um, But I knew that if I didn't take the job because I was scared or unprepared, both of which I was, I might never get this opportunity again. And there was something that was saying to me, I want to do more with my theater life than just do new American plays. I want to do Shakespeare. I want to do old musicals. I want to do big productions. And there are very few places for me to do that. Um, so I made the leap into a bigger arena because there was something in me. It was had nothing to do with ambition or anything. It had everything to do with growing as a person of the, a man of the theater. So when you talk about these other theaters expanding into the Broadway arena or getting bigger stages or whatever, I believe, I truly believe that the raison d'etre of that expansion is their need to grow artistically. I think there are people, especially in the commercial theater, who are kind of wary of this nonprofit, you know, taking over our turf, uh, you know, competing for Tony Awards. I mean, you know, we're all aware. We're, I'm not as aware of it up here because the Beaumont was always a Broadway theater. So we had nothing to do with pushing it that way. Um, though we do rent Broadway houses when we have a long-running show in the Beaumont. And it's a blessed relief because it allows me to do a play in a proscenium theater. I could never have done those Odette's plays, Golden Boy or Awake and Sing in the, in the Beaumont. But I think it's it's stretching artistic muscles more than it is trying to take over someone else's turf. And what do you think about those of my peers who whisper about saying, oh, of course, King and I, they can do that up there because they don't have to worry about balancing their books up there. They can do South Pacific with all those musicians 
do you think there is truth to that whispered about talk well, that you have an advantage over no, the I commercial don't. producer? I, 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 you know, I, I have many, 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 many close friends in the commercial theater, and I grew up in the commercial theater when I was a kid in New York. So you're not going to get any guff from me because I don't have it in me. But I think if people who worked in the commercial theater who have their own issues to deal with financially, raising money, making money, presumably turning a profit, if, but I, I want to say, to go back to something you asked me in the beginning of this interview, just come up here for a week and try and raise the kind of money we have to raise. Try and constantly, constantly, constantly talk to people, write to people, thank people, grovel to keep these institutions going. And these institutions are more than just putting on plays. We have a large education program. We have a huge director's lab. We have a magazine. You know, we, we, we are trying to fit in within an arts complex up here and make our place here. I, I think that the fact that we did The King and I in South Pacific with all those people is not the fact that we can afford it. We can't afford it. We, more often than not, have deficits at the end of the year. It has to do with my philosophy is that if a nonprofit institution such as this one is doing The King and I or South Pacific, then we have to do them as well as they can possibly be done. Our choice of doing these two shows, these are two examples, but there are others, makes no economic sense at all. No commercial producer in their right mind would do it. Uh, I'm sure they would want to do it, but they can't. Um, we can, but I would hate people to think that, oh, it's just so easy, they have so much money. Uh, we don't. And... I don't lose sleep over the quality of our work, which is up and down like everyone else. I mostly lose sleep over how are we going to achieve what we want to do within our ability to earn and raise money. And we're talking about eight plays a year and many, many subsidiary activities uh, that have nothing to do, that are just only tangential to the putting on of plays, workshops, readings, all that stuff. So I wish you to go back in the world and tell those producers that it ain't no better roses in these nonprofit theaters either. And I believe that the more camaraderie and collegial or collegial, I never know how to pronounce that word, relations we the commercial you the commercial theater and we the nonprofit have in this city. We're the only city in America that has Broadway, commercial theater and nonprofit side by side. We have to work together and not kind of snipe. It's just boring and it's unnecessary. We all want the same thing. We want to do good shows. Yeah, I, as you said it, and I don't think I'll have to go tell anybody because you just did a lot more eloquently than I could ever. But you said, I just want to do great work in our ability, confined within our ability to earn and raise money. That's the same mission that a well, Broadway producer has. But that's my point. We're no different than you are, you meaning commercial, me, us meaning uh, nonprofit. 
it's the same. The trappings are a little different. But I'm very aware of how difficult it is putting commercial plays on on Broadway and sending them out on the road, believe me. But we have difficulties, too, in these theaters. You know, people think, oh, you're so subsidized, the government. Blah. What dream are they dreaming? If I were to... T I, how, much, how much subsidy do you think from government Lincoln Center Theater gets? What percentage of our yearly budget would you guess we get from the taxpayer? I could begin, but my I would guess double digit, certainly a higher double digit figure. If I said to you one half of one percent of our yearly budget comes from the government? Uh, that would be a surprise. Well, I'm sorry, shock. but that's the truth. So, you know, this myth that there's just all this government subsidy, taxpayers' dollars, it's just not true. There used to be more, but the NEA was cut down, the state council was cut down. And, of course, everything has gone up. Expenses have gone up. We, the Beaumont, is practically like Broadway. We just finished a local one negotiation. We have negotiations with unions. We have every union that you on Broadway have in the Beaumont Theater. Advice to young playwrights out there? My advice is, is that you, young playwrights, are entering into a golden age of American playwriting. There are more gifted writers than I have ever seen in my quite long career, and my long career that's a lot been involved with new American writing. The reason we're in a golden age is because there are theaters in New York and theaters all over the country, hundreds of them, that are now interested in f focusing a lot on new plays. That means there are opportunities for writers in a way that there never have been before. Opportunities create artists. And I think, you know, we're also screwed up in the theater. We, we can't even sit back and, you know, congratulate ourselves on anything. We, and we don't have the time to sit around thinking, oh, we're in a golden age, we're in a golden age. But we are. The quality of work I see in New York, the diversity of work, the plays that I just can't get to, compared to 20 years ago, is overwhelming to me. And then there's the rest of this enormous country. So to a young playwright, I would say you're coming in at a great, great time. Is it ever easy? No. But there are there is a need and an interest in your work more than there ever has been before. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin treks up here to Lincoln Center and says, Andre, I, I have to thank you for the incredible amount of work you've done to usher in American playwrights into our world for the past 40 years. And I want to thank you by giving you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway the thing that makes you angry, the thing that keeps you up at night, that you would want About this... the Broadway theater? Yeah, the Broadway theater it can be Lincoln Center producing first-class theater in New York. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy you'd have him wish away? You know, it's one of these questions of yours again that I can think of two answers. I don't think I can think of one. One minor stupid answer, and it's only about Broadway, is 
I, the traffic and congestion I find abhorrent. As a kid who grew up going to what we used to call the theater district, I, I, I find it just abhorrent to, to, to go there, to the favorite place I have ever been in my life, the Broadway theater. That's minor. The major thing that I would wish away if the genie were to come is that I wish we, both in the commercial theater and the nonprofit, but maybe a little more in the nonprofit because our salaries are lower, we had access to the absolute best actors. There's so much going on in movies and even more in TV now that, you know, and many of these TV shows and some of them are incredibly good are being shot in New York. Um, I wish that either we in the theater could pay comparable salaries or simply that we in the theater had greater access to the absolute A-plus actor list, which we occasionally do. And there's so many fine actors that, you know, I'm not complaining, but I think all of us in the theater, you know, our turndowns are higher than our acceptances. And, uh, you know, uh, I wish, like in England, actors were able to do TV and movies and act on the stage with greater frequency than they are over here. I want to thank you for that answer. I want to thank you for spending this time with us. And as I'm listening to you and all this stuff, I do think you're probably the producer who has produced the most diverse group of material of any one of us. So I want to thank you for that. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't forget to tune into the Tony Awards this Sunday, June 12th, 8 o'clock on CBS. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.